Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you again for downloading or streaming uh, this next episode of, of Meet the Maquonics. We're actually introducing a, a new set of podcasts uh, within the Maquonics series here. Um, as you may or may not know, I'm also affiliated with the Center for Quantum Software and Information at the University of Technology, Sydney. And ever since everyone went down onto lockdown because of COVID-19, um, UTS QSI has started uh, a seminar series. Uh, they usually do about two a week. Um, where we're getting people in on a fairly regular basis to talk about their research. Now, this is all being uploaded onto YouTube at the moment, um, but we thought what we'd try and do, and just see how it works out, is to also mirror just the audio uh, on this podcast and lead into it with about a 10-minute interview with the person who is giving the UTS QSI seminar series, uh, a bit of background on them, a bit of background on the project uh, that they're working on that they're going to be talking about, and then we'll just stream the audio um, from the actual seminar itself. Now, obviously, these seminars usually come with slides and it might not be terribly easy to follow just with the audio. So I do encourage you for every one of these that you listen to, uh, to click on the link in the description uh, and go to the actual YouTube video and watch the seminar directly and see the slides and, and get the full context of what's going on. But if you're out for a run or um, you're doing some other exercise or just happen to be walking around um, and want to listen to it on the audio and get a flavor for it, um, then so do so. We'll see how this goes over the next couple of months. Um, these will not be uh, labeled as regular episodes of the podcast. These will be labeled as part of the QSI seminar series. And send me a tweet, send me an email, give us a bit of feedback as to whether or not uh, this kind of thing is interesting to you and, and whether it works. So aside from that, on with our very first guest. Okay. okay. Um, hello, everyone. Thanks uh, for joining me today on this sort of new experimental uh, idea of uh, Maquonics podcast while we're all in lockdown um, to support the online seminar series from the Center for Quantum Software and Information at uh, the University of Technology, Sydney. And I'm very, very happy today to have on uh, Associate Professor Yvonne Gao from the National University of Singapore. She's our guinea pig for today um, to try and give this a shot and see how it ends up working out. So Yvonne, thanks uh, very much for joining me today. Uh, not at all, my, my pleasure. And uh, I think I just, I should point out, it's assistant professor. I just oh, joined the university. <laughs> I wish I'm uh, already associate professor, but not quite. Not well, quite I'm yet. sure it'll happen very, very soon. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> So the whole idea of, of doing this for the first 10 minutes or so is just to provide a bit of a lead in to uh, the seminar that you recorded for QSI um, mm -hmm. to give people a bit of a background about yourself and a bit of a background to the project in which you're going to talk about for an hour in the seminar. So maybe to begin with, just give us a sort of a bit of a personal bio of, you know, how you got into quantum, sort of your background and, and what sort of drove you uh, to work in this research field. Sure. Um, so I was actually really fortunate that uh, when I was an undergraduate in Oxford, my tutor in the college, uh, uh, Professor Jonathan Jones, he's uh, actually one of the pioneers in NMR-based quantum computing experiments. So we had these really, uh, you know, intimate sessions of tutorials where just one or two of us with our tutor discussing uh, whatever we studied as well as whatever we want to do or learn more in physics. And through that, we actually got to have a sense of what uh, quantum physics experiments looked like and the potential that it could have in, you know, in science and technology uh, overall. 
So, so that's really where I started looking into this field and considering maybe continuing my uh, education uh, to do research in this particular area. Um, and uh, so after undergraduate, I, uh, I had a small uh, gap year that I got to do a bit of research uh, internship and a bit of reading. And I think that really consolidated my, my interest in this area. So, uh, so that led me to actually continue my, uh, to do my PhD at Yale University with uh, Professor Rob Shalkov and Michelle Devere. So uh, I think uh, Yale is one of the, the biggest or oldest centers for this discipline. So over, over at Yale, I really got to learn all the, the glamorous parts of the science and the excitement, but also a lot of the nitty gritty details and the uh, very, you know, uh, very manual hands-on work that's required to, to actually do successful experiments using quantum circuits. Um, and this actually, uh, I, I, this whole combination of doing, you know, exciting and new science, as well as constantly solving hands-on problems in the lab, uh, was a really attractive uh, combination for me. So, um, you know, during my PhD, I learned as much as I could, and I think my projects actually followed a pretty coherent story. So when I started, uh, we, I think the efforts on bosonic quantum computing was really at the very beginning stage. We had some theory proposals, we had maybe the first one or two proof of principle demonstrations, and there's uh, a lot of effort in the group and within our collaboration teams as well to push this area forward. Um, and I think for me, after observing and learning what has been done, the area that stood out to me as being a critical next step in this topic is to think about bring more than just one bosonic qubits together. Uh, so, so that's where it led me to these multi-mold uh, multi experiments involving two cavities. Uh, and uh, we started by doing, you know, just simple step, state preparation and tomography. And then we moved on to actually engineering operations between them, doing gates, and even thinking about doing algorithms between them. So, so it was uh, a, a really meaningful learning process for me as well from, you know, the very basics of circuits to actually designing new experiments that's kind of at the forefront of a new topic that's gaining momentum. So you're talking in the seminar um, about universal quantum computation using yeah. bosonic modes and, and bosonic qubits. And maybe just give people a bit of a flavor as to, okay, I've heard of qubits before, but what, what's bosonic qubits and what's the difference and why is this a better way of potentially building quantum computing systems? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the way I think about it intuitively, intuitively is that uh, when we build quantum uh, devices, we always want to have control and access to a large Hilbert space. So this will give us better capacity for information storage, uh, as well as for, you know, things like quantum error correction and maybe interesting algorithms. So the problem with uh, increasing the, span, the, the Hilbert space in our system is that usually the traditional way of just adding more and more qubits uh, would bring additional, uh, additional imperfections as well. So each additional qubit will bring its own uh, loss mechanisms and with more of them together, there could be really uncontrolled interactions between them. So our thinking is, you know, can we 
achieve this goal of having access to a larger Hilbert space without actually introducing all these additional baggage that comes with the you know, introduction of new uh, moving parts or more qubits. Uh, and this is what led to the uh, adoption of using superconducting cavities uh, because they are intrinsically harmonic oscillators. So that's why we call them bosonic modes because they, mm -hmm. their behavior is more, more of a boson than a fermion, which is more of a two-level system. Um, so by using cavities, we actually have a lot access to a large Hilbert space that we can have good control over. Uh, but at the same time, we maintain the, you know, uh, the limited sources of error that, that could happen to this particular mode. So overall, I think that gives us a very effective and hardware efficient uh, platform to encode information as an alternative to the standard way of using two level systems. Well, I think that's the perfect lead in now. And I think hopefully that should wet everyone's whistle a little bit. And uh, if you want to hear more about all of this and, and spend an hour listening to, to how bosonic quantum computing could actually be better than the standard qubit approach, um, go to the QSI website, which we've linked to in the description and listen to Yvonne's seminar. So Yvonne, thanks very much hey. for, for being the guinea pig for this. <laughs> Not at all. And everyone, uh, obviously, stay in tune with all our social media channels for the next installment of uh, this QSI special series of Laquanics. So thank you. Thank you. So uh, we're very pleased uh, to welcome today uh, Yvonne Gao uh, to talk with us about um, her recent experiments and her, I guess, planned experiments as well. Uh, Yvonne, um, uh, did her PhD in the very uh, prestigious Yale Superconducting Qubits Group um, and has uh, won a very prestigious uh, fellowship to start up her own group now at the National University of Singapore. And um, she's going to talk to us about her work with uh, bosonic qubits and uh, very excited to hear all the latest news. Um, take it away, Yvonne. Thanks very much. Thank you, Nathan, for the introduction. Uh, and hi, everyone. So. Um, I noticed that the previous uh, talks in the seminar so far has mostly been theory talks. So we're gonna switch gears a little bit and we're, we're going to focus a lot more on the hardware and experimental aspects of actually doing quantum information processing with bosonic qubits uh, in a circuit QED architecture. Okay, so um, I think to start with, uh, I just want to maybe summarize a little bit about what's going on in the experimental domain for building quantum computers these days. So I found, I found this uh, really nice little chart from one of the recent review papers uh, from uh, Will Oliver and a couple other people. So, it's, so one way to think about the current status is that, you know, we've been working very consistently on improving the basic building blocks for circuit QED quantum computing uh, systems. So that goes from just building more and more robust qubits to having better control lines, uh, control electronics, uh, doing better readouts and better gates. Okay, so these are the necessary parts that have been, you know, that's been constantly improving over the past decade. Um, and as we're getting better with these, we are starting to explore the next step in using these, these systems to actually do something interesting and move further along the lines of building a quantum computer. So um, I think this is where it starts to diverge a little bit. So one path is maybe the uh, NISC 
uh, approach, the NISC efforts, where people, where groups are focusing on using what we already have to piece them together and make prototypical quantum processors that can maybe start to implement some interesting quantum tasks or even achieve uh, a little bit of an advantage over our classical uh, classical computing systems. So. You know, there's a lot of recent developments in this area, uh, quantum supremacy, whatnot. So uh, this is clearly a very interesting field, um, but there are some challenges in this approach because once we reach, you know, once we're in this NISC era, we'll have to eventually look into the challenge of quantum error correction to ensure that the computation will eventually be faithful and robust enough to solve real problems, right? So. Um, while the, the sort of prototypical processors are extremely useful for us to learn about scaling up the system and how they behave, what their failure modes are, um, I think it's also important that we tackle the challenges in, uh, in parallel uh, in a slightly different manner. Right? And this brings me to the approach that some of us are working on at Yale, Chicago, and a few other, um, a few other big research centers all over the world. And, and this you can imagine as being um, something that first focuses on quantum error correction and then scaling up, right? So uh, I think the efforts started, uh, started with groups of people working on how to encode the information in a protected way, but without the large amount of overhead that say a surface code would require. Um, and, and I think this you know, brought in a whole host of interesting new encoding schemes. And I think the leading platform right now in this, in this arena is bosonic qubits encoded in superconducting cavities. Right? I will talk, to, you know, talk about the details of that a little bit later. But in general, I think the outlook for this alternative path or this parallel uh, effort is that we want to first figure out ways to do error correction on a single mode to make sure that we can have protected qubits that can live longer than its physical elements. Um, and then we want to uh, you know, move into the areas of actually doing operations or multi-qubit gates on these protected systems and eventually scaling them up and putting more of them together to have the complexity and the performance requirement needed to actually build a thought tolerant and general purpose quantum computer. Right? And this is the approach that I will focus on. Um, and in general, I think uh, the way we think about bosonic encoding, which uh, I've alluded to earlier, is that uh, it offers some uh, very important advantages that actually makes the task of quantum error correction more tractable, right? And the rationale is really uh, quite intuitive. So in general, I think the more textbook approach to encoding information redundantly to offer protection against quantum, quantum noise is to use a collection of two-level systems. So these could be, you know, spins or uh, transmons or fluxoniums or, you know, what have you not. Um, but in general, uh, for each level system, we can have a few different ways, uh, a different error channels. And that includes spontaneous emission, sometimes uh, thermal, thermal population jumping upwards, uh, as well as, you know, dephasing and other things. And if we put more of these together, we see that with every mode we add, we actually end up adding additional noise, uh, noise channels. Um, and more importantly, as we put them together, we actually introduce some errors that are uh, somewhat uncorrectable. And this could be long range, uh, long, long range uh, connections or interactions that are not controllable. So uh, generally we call these crosstalks. 
so you can imagine the neighbors could have a coupling that's always on and that's something that we do not want. Um, even worse, we could imagine if there's some sort of mold overlap in the spectral domain, then we could have even longer range interactions that could really mess up uh, our computation. Right? So uh, this approach in general gives us a very quick scaling of the Hilbert space that we want to have for quantum error correction. But the trade-off is that we are adding more failure modes and introducing some potentially uncorrectable errors. Um, and in general, uh, controlling all of these modes individually and doing gates among them is quite a challenging task. I mean, there's a lot of uh, remarkable engineering achievements in this area, but it's still uh, a relatively challenging, um, challenging task to achieve, right? So one way um, we thought about doing, approaching this is to, you know, think about these challenges and see what platform could give us um, a easier, a easier time to actually achieve this large Hilbert space for encoding the information without adding all these bad things to it. Uh, and that's where we arrived at using uh, harmonic mode. And it's quite clear that when, you, when we have a harmonic mode, we can use a lot of its different levels. Um, and you know, we can, once we couple this to any sort of nonlinear ancilla, we then can control these levels individually and break the degeneracy. So that's really convenient. But the more important part is that uh, despite having access to a much larger Hilbert space, we now still only have a single dominant error channel, right? That's just a way, uh, that's, that's simply just a harmonic oscillator losing its energy. The dephasing is typically quite, uh, quite minimal. So there are some minor uh, error channels, but the dominant way of uh, losing information or having a quantum error occurring is due to photon loss. And the fact that there is only one channel makes the, uh, the, the concept of tracking the errors and correcting them a lot more tractable. And it also reduces the hardware overhead that we need to put together uh, in order to achieve this large Hilbert space, right? Because the control we need is still a single mode control. Uh, we can address all of these excitations in whatever combinations, just using clever tricks with one single cavity and one nonlinear ancilla. Right. So in general, I think the bosonic encoding compared to the traditional way of putting information in a collection of two-level systems offers quite a lot of interesting and useful advantages. And that's why um, there's been quite a lot of efforts in this, in this area, both in the theory and experimental uh, areas in the recent years. Okay, so just to summarize, I think uh, looking to you know, this little outlook, uh, we have indeed realized quite a lot of different encodings of logical qubits uh, in this type of bosonic, uh, bosonic uh, encoding schemes. Uh, and here are just a few examples. Uh, they are somewhat recent. Uh, some, of them, some of them are actually fresh out of the experimental uh, lab. Uh, so we have the GKP code, the bosonic code, and CAD code as the three leading contenders for being the uh, choice of encoding. Um, but there, there are more being developed, uh, both in theory and experiments, just as, uh, as we're going further in this area. Um, so once we have created these interesting encoding schemes, we also looked into how to do single qubit operations on them. Right? If we can only store them as quantum memories and not have any way of interacting that with them, then they are essentially not that useful for quantum information processing. Um, 
and in terms of doing operations, there are also a lot of different approaches. But so far, I think there's been several demonstrations of implementing universal control with relatively good fidelity uh, on all of these uh, encoding schemes. Right. Um, so, so that's really exciting. And I think we're ready to now, you know, tackle the next step while still making improvements on these uh, preliminary building blocks. And the next step, the logical next step is really starting to look into multi qubit gates uh, on these encoded uh, bosonic systems. Uh, and, so, and there has been some work in this area already. So in 2018, uh, one of my uh, group mates at Yale and I, we actually worked on making a CMOT gate between two of these qubits. Um, but they, uh, they are, you know, these two examples for, so far, they are very much dependent on the choice of encoding. So what that means is that we choose a particular way of encoding information in our bosonic nodes, and we engineer a specific gate just tailored for that particular choice of encoding. And that has quite a lot of limitation, limitations, right? So um, I think to go forward into building a general purpose quantum computer, what we really want to achieve oops, uh, is that we want to make gates that are generally code word independent. Uh, these check marks are not supposed to be there yet. Um, and they should be programmable. So we want to be able to you know, turn them on and off uh, well, but also maybe change them during the computation to implement a different type of gate uh, on our protected qubits. And we also want to make sure that whatever we engineer eventually will form a complete gate set so that we can have universal control and really implement uh, any algorithm that we want to on these systems. So here, you know, what, I was, what I'm aiming to illustrate is really that when we have the simplest architecture we can imagine is to have two bosonic codes and we want to be able to choose whatever encoding uh, we need for their particular local error model or their particular functionality and still do implement our gates on them uh, without having to change the hardware. Right? So in this talk, uh, I'll basically introduce to you some, our some of our recent results on two of these interactions. One is uh, a driven bilinear coupling and this can be used to do to uh, realize beam splitters uh, or swap gates between two uh, cavity modes or bosonic modes. Uh, and then I'll talk about how we build upon this linear bilinear coupling to actually make a universal entanglement gate uh, for bosonic qubits. Okay, um, but before we, we go into the details of these uh, two operations, uh, let's just have a look at the hardware, right? So uh, it generally looks something like this when we have two cavities uh, from the side view. So this is just a piece of bulk high purity aluminum and we machine it to have the structure, uh, the, the design, desired structures uh, and the connectivity uh, ports built in. So one, each one of these is a 3D microwave uh, cavity. Uh, from the side view, it looks something like this, where we have a cylindrical uh, cavity with a stub in the middle that defines the exact mode structure and the frequency uh, of, the, of its modes. Uh, the, these cavities are generally designed to have the aspect ratio such that there is, you know, uh, a good protection against leakage, uh, the field leaking out, field, electric field leaking out of the cavities. Uh, so there's, you know, uh, protection from, from the, from loss due to that. Um, we also have a nonlinear ancilla inserted into the tunnel design here. So this 
this chip corresponds to this chip here. Um, and this is just a standard single junction transmon qubit. So there's a standard Josephson junction with some large capacitance paths. And the reason why it looks like this is because we want to have a simultaneous dispersive coupling to both of the cavities. And this is actually a really flexible way of designing it. We, you know, if, if we were to have more cavities, it is completely uh, adaptable to introduce additional capacitive coupling structures, uh, which is quite nice. Uh, on the same chip, we also have a uh, strip of metal. And this is actually a really neat uh, design uh, came up by someone at Yale um, that, you know, with this simple structure together with the walls, the metal walls of the tunnel, it actually forms a uh, strip line resonator. So uh, what this gives us is a very simple and cheap way of getting another mold into the, onto the same chip where we can use for fast readout uh, or the reset of the uh, transmount mode. Okay, so with this simple architecture, we can actually have control over both, universal control over both uh, Alice and Bob, which are our two bosonic qubits. Um, we, can, we also have generally really good isolation between these two because the, uh, the fact that they are spectrally separated uh, and also housed in distinct cavity structures uh, makes them have very, very little mold overlap. So I think the, you know, um, natural or always on coupling between these two cavities um, is only mediated through this, uh, this uh, nonlinear ancilla and it's higher order in their coupling strength. So it's, it's really a small effect, I think, on the order of kilohertz. So it's very hard to measure actually. So, so that's nice because now we have two uh, distinct uh, bosonic qubits that do not have any unwanted always-on couplings between them. Uh, and finally, this is a, quite a flexible architecture as well because we can introduce uh, additional ancilla or additional readout modes uh, to each of these cavities or even further if we wish to, um, to you know, reconfigure the system to provide a little bit more control capabilities or additional, uh, additional, um, uh, additional gate uh, gate capacities. Okay, so looking into this architecture, uh, as I was saying, uh, these two cavities are well isolated and generally they're, you know, the fact that they are largely detuned by close to a gigahertz usually means that if we have something here uh, and something in Bob, they will not mix with each other uh, naturally or there will be no operation or gates possible without intentionally engineering something. Um, and the task, so with this architecture, actually, the first thing we did is, is to just see if we can actually initialize states in the two of them. And that's been done and, and seems to be a relatively straightforward task. So the next thing we wanted to do is to see, can we now intentionally engineer a coupling between them, right? So that now we can have uh, useful gates between two well-isolated and potentially protected bosonic qubits. Um, and this, this is something that we can draw inspiration from uh, old works in the group and, and many others in, in this field, uh, which is basically the amplifier processes, right? They actually make use of the four-wave mixing abilities of the Josephson junction to uh, achieve parametric conversion or amplification. Uh, and in here, in our system, it's actually not that different. 
we have two modes that are detuned. They don't talk to each other naturally, but we want to drive, if, but if we drive it in a certain way, maybe we can enact the frequency converting uh, interaction, right? So uh, the, the thinking process is really, now let's use this junction, not just as a nonlinear uh, ancilla, we actually wanted to use it as a converter. So uh, the, the idea is that if we choose the drive such that the detuning between the drives exactly compensates the energy difference between the two cavities, then we should be able to actually achieve a bilinear coupling that looks like this, right? So basically you can take one excitation from Alice and put in Bob and vice versa. And this is a time dependent one and uh, basically depending, uh, basically depends on the duration and the amplitude of the drives that we choose. Um, so it's, it's a very much tunable process uh, based on how we drive the system. Uh, and intuitively, this is also easy to, to characterize, right? So if we just initialize uh, Alice with one single excitation and we turn on this coupling, the signature of this actually success, successfully working is that the single oscillation should uh, basically go back and forth between Alice and Bob without losing its coherence. Um, and this is the first experiment that we did to see if we've managed to achieve this process. Uh, and this is just a simple measurement of a joint probability of one excitation in Alice and zero in Bob. Uh, and what we see is that it oscillates um, periodically over uh, over a hundred, hundreds of microseconds. Um, and uh, what's important to note that is, is that now we want to see when it's no longer in Alice, it is indeed in Bob, it's not somewhere uh, lost somewhere else or it starts to go into a different leakage mode, right? So we did the reciprocal measurement of measuring the probability of that excitation being Bob uh, and nothing left in Alice. Alice. Uh, and we see that the oscillation is, is basically exactly out of phase with roughly the same decay, decay envelope. Um, and this is you know, very consistent with our, with our expectations. So in general, I think we conclude that if we drive it with, the, with a chosen set of amplitude, we can find a pulse duration that gives us a full swap where the excitation is taken out of Alice and completely transferred to Bob. Uh, and if we stop halfway, we can have a process that's essentially a balanced uh, beam splitter between the two modes. Okay, so this is, um, this is a good indication of the fact that we can drive a, uh, a coherent coupling between the two modes, even though they are uh, not naturally coupled to each other. Okay, so uh, after this sort of initial tests, the next natural thing for us to do is to actually uh, check that we can now transfer, we can transfer not only a single photon, but something that has a phase, uh, phase property as well. So what we, uh, what we tried to do is that we initialize Alice in vacuum, but Bob in a superposition state, right? So this is usually uh, a, a useful test for anything involving quantum transfer or uh, quantum gates is to you know make sure that we can not we, we don't only move the excitation but we also maintain the phase coherence during the process. Um, what we did is to turn on the swap coupling or two beam splitter uh, durations, and we measured the Wigner function of the final output state 
from Alice and Bob individually. And we see that the state is fully transferred to Alice and Bob now is uh, completely evacuated. Right? So this also gives us a, a, um, the reassurance that our process uh, preserves the phase coherence of the quantum states we put into the cavities. Um, and it can, you know, this also provides the confidence that this will be basically uh, compatible with any sort of quantum state we put in these cavities. They can be the protected, um, you know, they can be the error correctable CAT states or boson uh, or GKP states, and our operation will still be useful uh, as a swap uh, as a swap gate. Right. So this is this is something very useful. Um, but still, at this point, everything is essentially everything about the operation is essentially linear still, right? And, and I think we all know that to do useful quantum information processing, we will have to eventually have an untangling operation one way or another. Uh, and, uh, and what we wanted to see is that, you know, uh, with our beam spur coupling is that, does that give us a good untangling operation? Because, you know, it, it is possible to, to untangle states using a beam switcher, right? So, um, uh, as, uh, as part of that uh, ver verification, what we did is to see uh, how the uh, statistics evolve as a function of the evolution under the beam splitter, beam splitter coupling uh, between the two cavities. Um, and the uh, setup is something like this, where we initialize both of the cavities in, um, in their single photon uh, box states. Uh, and we turn on the, our coupling and basically observe the statistics at each of the cavities uh, after each duration of the beam, beam splitter. Um, what we see is that uh, this is, so what we, what we observe uh, in the z-axis here is the probability of measuring a particular distribution of the combination of photons. Um, and we see is that in the beginning we have uh, the one one state being the most likely, which is, uh, in, which is uh, consistent because that's our initial state. And as we turn on this coupling, we see that we oscillate out of uh, the one one states completely and go into an equal superposition of the zero two and two zero states, right? So this is very much the frequency, uh, the frequency converting version of the, uh, the classic Homer-Mendel interference uh, experiment. And at the next cycle, we actually refocus back to one one, uh, and then it coherently oscillates back and forth between these two possible subspace uh, as we go along. But what we observe here is that you know there is indeed uh, an untangled state at the end is is the noon state, but we have leaked out of our encoding space, right? So our initial code space is in zero one. Uh, but now we've gone into a space where it's zero two or two zero, and this is actually not good for uh, for quantum error correction and uh, using protected and uh, using bosonic encodings to do information processing. Um, so, you know, from here, I think what it's important to recognize is that a beam splitter doesn't in itself generate entanglement. The entanglement is really due to the fact that we're putting in a very a highly non-classical state, right? So uh, to, you know, just to completely put that, uh, you know, uh, verify that, we then try a different type of initial state, which is semi-classical, it's just a standard coherent state and the vacuum state. 
And if we do the same process, we realize that at the end of it, we actually do not get any entangled state. Uh, we just get two coherent states of, a half, of the, half of the amplitude of the initial input coherent state. So what this tells us is that a single beam sitter doesn't give us a good entangling gate for general purpose quantum information processing. Um, it, it always brings us out of our original code space, which is not desirable as well. Uh, so this motivates us to build upon this and actually go to go further to build a uh, code independent uh, entangling operation. So uh, how do we generally approach this task of making entangling gate, right? In general, I think um, my intuition is that if we can achieve a superposition of doing a swap gate and not doing a swap gate, which is identity, then we can actually entangle the two modes that, that's involved in this operation. So this actually can be translated into this e-swap operation. Um, it's been proposed uh, by uh, Lau and Plenu a few years ago uh, in a theory proposal. Uh, but in general, it really is just a tunable uh, superposition of the identity and the swap. Uh, and the coefficient in front is controlled by a rotation angle uh, introduced, uh, introduced to the system from by an ancilla. Okay. So this is actually a, a very useful gate because it is compatible with any bosonic platforms uh, because none of these, uh, neither of these operations are dependent on the choice of code words. Um, it actually also provides the missing entangling gate to form a universal gate set. So with this, plus just single mode control, we can have a, a, a universal, a complete gate set to implement any algorithms. Uh, and finally, it also has other uses outside just, uh, you know, forming a complete gate set for universal control. Uh, there are other applications as well. So, so, you know, that's why I think uh, once we had the swap operation, uh, this was the next thing on our, on our agenda because it's a really useful operation to be able to have in our repertoire for bosonic encodings. Um, so physically, how do we implement this? Uh, is that we constructed out of two beam splitters separated by a, of two controlled phase shifts plus single mode rotations. Uh, so there's more details about why we chose this specific implementation um, in Liang, Liang Jiang and Steve Gervin's paper. Um, but general, the general rationale or intuition is that we want the ancilla, which usually is you know, uh, provided by the nonlinearity of a transmon, um, and it, ten it tends to be the least coherent element in a system like this. The cavities have coherence up to milliseconds, and the transmounts are usually tens of microseconds in coherence. So generally, we want to keep the transmount or the ancilla in the ground state as much as possible. Um, so in this case, we actually managed to make it start in ground state and end in ground state. So it's only uh, actively involved in the system over a short duration. Um, also, for the control phase gates, uh, we actually have a very natural way of implementing this because this is essentially just measuring the parity or, uh, or what we use to map out the parity of the cavity uh, using the natural dispersive interaction between the ancilla and these uh, bosonic nodes. Uh, and finally, the overall gate time is, is not very long compared to the coherence of the two cavities. Uh, and everything in here is purely microwave activated 
So there's no special hardware that we need to build in, such as new flux drive lines and, and things like that. So uh, we can program this on demand uh, if such a gate is needed. Um, and we can turn it off completely when, uh, when the computation is in idle times or uh, other operations are in process. Okay, so uh, with this circuit in mind, uh, and all these building blocks that's already available to us, uh, we realized we implemented this protocol. And as a test, we looked into, you know, putting into uh, putting in the system our semi-classical states again. Uh, so this is the state where, it, where uh, no entanglement is achieved if we only have a single beam splitter. But now we put in our e-swap uh, circuit and we should expect to see a fully entangled two-mode uh, two state, where you can see that there's strong correlate, or there's full correlation between the phases of each of the coherent state components in the system. Um, and this process is deterministic. It does preserve the code space. And uh, overall, it also preserves the joint parity, which can be used as a uh, error syndrome for monitoring whether with had a photon jam event in either of the cavities or not, right? So uh, this is what we expect to see. Um, and in terms of its uh, experimental signatures, what we should observe if we measure the joint Wigner function, uh, and this is, may not be the most intuitive, so I'll try to go through this a little bit slower. So what I'm showing here is the simulated four-mode Wigner tomography, but a plane cut uh, in that 4D phase space. Right, so here uh, in the top graph, I'm showing the imaginary and the imaginary planes. Um, and what we see is just uh, interference patterns or the fringes, which is a good indication of quantum coherence. Um, and in the real and real plane, we see that we, uh, we observe the distribution of the population, right? Because you see, we started with alpha minus alpha. Uh, at the end of it, if our gate is really preserving the excitation and the joint parity, then we should see that the probability of measuring any population in the system should still be focused on alpha and minus alpha. Okay, so this, these two planes actually give us a good, a good indication of whether we've managed to make a two-mode entangled state with our operation. Uh, the full uh, characterization of the state will require us to uh, have more statistics in different uh, points in the 4D phase space, uh, but this is a, these two snapshots actually provide a good intuitive um, picture of whether that's uh, been achieved or not. Uh, what we measure actually is something that looks very similar in the imaginary and imaginary plane. We see that we see the coherent oscillations um, and in the real and real plane, we see the population distribution at the correct place. And you can see that there is a little bit of additional feature in the middle uh, and it looks coherent, right? This is not just noisy, it actually has a feature. Um, and this led us to, to think about what additional higher order effects could be happening. Uh, and we actually managed to uh, pin it down to the higher order nonlinearities in the two bosonic qubits inherited from the nonlinear ancilla. So this is sometimes called the curve, um, the self-curve of the cavity. So if we put that into, if we independently measure that and put that into our simulation, then we actually reproduce this uh, small feature in the center of the uh, uh, Wigner, Wigner cut quite precisely. So, um, so I think 
this is a good indication that we've indeed achieved such a state. Um, and uh, you know, with this in mind, we can also characterize it in the logical subspace, which is, uh, which is basically mapping alpha to zero, logical zero, minus alpha to one, for example, uh, and see that how well we can actually achieve a two qubit gate in this exact encoding, right? And this is a standard uh, poly measurement of, uh, two, uh, of two modes. And we see that we, uh, we see that all the uh, expectation values are indeed at where they should be. The slightly transparent uh, bars are the uh, simulated values and the uh, fully colored ones are what we have measured. So just raw numbers extracted from our um, state tomography uh, experiments. So uh, there are a little bit of spurious distribution and that we, we can account for these by taking into account of the higher order nonlinearity uh, in our system. So this provides a good indication that we can use our uh, e-swap gate as a two qubit uh, entangling operation. And it does preserve our code space well. All right, so, so far, uh, I think based on what I've shown you, uh, we could extract the raw uh, uh, quality, quality of our operation. So here you can see that it's 74% is actually not that impressive, but this is without any, uh, any correction of measurements uh, or uh, state preparation. So uh, we could identify where most of the missing uh, fidelities are. Uh, a majority of them actually come from spam errors. And this is because measuring um, the joint Wigner function at the moment is still not uh, extremely efficient. So it takes a little bit longer leading to a, a potentially more errors in the measurement process and a reduced contrast as a result of that. The next big effect uh, accounting for several percent up to five is the uh, curve uh, nonlinearity inherited from its um, non from the nonlinear ancilla we introduced to the system. And then we have a little bit of the decoherence effects as well as nonlinearities in our operation. But overall, I think this, this gate has the potential to be improved uh, quite a lot more to the 90-95% level by simply accounting for the spam uh, aspects of the, um, of, the, of the system. Okay, and uh, you know, just to conclude also uh, in, for this particular gate, so far I've on, only shown you one particular angle in this operation, which is the fully entangling case. But if we really engineered a full unitary operation with the possibility of tuning it, then we should be able to observe, we should be able to do a controlled, uh, controlled uh, rotation and basically observe its full evolution from a simple identity gate to an entangling gate and then back to a swap gate, right? So with this, what we, uh, what we could do is to sweep the uh, rotation angle while monitoring some of the uh, key elements in the two qubit Pauli operators. Uh, for the IIN uh, ZZ component, for example, what we observe is that they stay constant and this makes sense because they represent the population, so the expectations in the system, as well as the parity in the system. So uh, they should not be uh, uh, varying as a function of this angle. Um, but if we look at the uh, distribution of 
the iz and zi components we see coherent oscillations so this corresponds to it moving from a fully uh, an identity gate to a swap gate and if we look at the uh, two qubit joint correlated operators we actually see out of phase operation uh, oscillations uh, that are of the same amplitude and the same uh, period right so now we actually have a much clearer picture of how the entire unitary operates uh, as a function of our tunable uh, pro programmable rotation angle. Um, and the final uh, characterization process we did is full process tomography. Um, and without going too much into details of this, I just want to show that we are able to do joint tomography of two bosonic qubits, even though you know it's a large Hilbert joint Hilbert space. And uh, this is a little bit resource intensive, but it's something that we have the techniques to do. And we can compare the uh, resulting state uh, process tomography uh, data with the expected one. And we see that we generally reproduce all the crucial features with some additional spurious distributions. Uh, which we can map onto the error or the uh, imperfections that we've identified before. Okay, so in general, we do have a very complete set of tools to both uh, initialize states, uh, implement an operation, and then do full tomography to characterize the operation in an architecture like this. So uh, we also tried this on several different uh, encodings. So the one, the two coded here are the uh, you know, the Fox state encoding and the binomial state encoding. Again, all of these are limited by uh, spam errors. And, uh, you know, these numbers, if we normalize out the readout, as well as the state preparation, uh, we can actually, we are actually in the 90% range uh, for both encoding. Um, so this actually concludes the, um, the, the you know, the talk about these two particular uh, uh, operations we've engineered between two bosonic systems. And as promised, I think our data does show uh, that, you know, these operations are generally code independent. Uh, we can program them, we can switch them on and off, and we can use them to do universal manipulations on the bosonic qubits. Um, so what's, uh, you know, th since this has been done, uh, a lot has happened uh, at Yale and elsewhere as well. So uh, just a little bit of outlook actually. Uh, following these efforts, uh, people have started building, started to build more and more powerful quantum modules using similar architectures. So this is our first generation. It, it's, you know, we, we think of it as maybe the first kind of transistor type of thing. It's bulky. It, it doesn't have many modes. It, it's, you know, it's useful as a test bed, but maybe not super uh, useful as a, um, uh, information processing module yet, but fairly quickly within a year or two, uh, people at Yale, other groups at Yale are actually starting to build larger devices in with similar design philosophies. Uh, and uh, for example, this particular device has four bosonic qubits and four nonlinear ancillas. Um, and the team has uh, have managed to use it to implement a um, uh, teleported gate between two of these chosen bosonic qubits. So there's a lot of interesting and exciting work going on uh, in this architecture. Um, and just in terms of, you know, uh, the fact that the footprint of these are so big and maybe uh, it beckons the question of how do we keep building larger and larger things with this device. Uh, 
and there are some alternatives that still re retains the uh, main design considerations of this architecture, but reducing its footprint. And this is something um, developed at Yale and Lincoln Labs and a few other places that's called uh, the multi-layer uh, uh, micro-machined quantum system, where you can see that the cavities now can be etched on a silicon wafer, so its footprint is much smaller, and we can use these multi-stacked, multi-layer structure to introduce the ancilla, the uh, control lines in a much more compact manner. So, uh, so I think there's you know, a lot of uh, excitement in this architecture as well uh, at the moment, because once the uh, design and the uh, optimization process of this is complete, then we can start to realize some of these uh, devices in a more compact form and maybe with more uh, flexible control capabilities as well. Uh, what's also interesting is that since the, since the uh, experiments uh, we did at Yale was finished, uh, another team actually took over the same device. So this is exactly the same device we used and adapted it into a bosonic simulator. Right? So it has the same structure, two bosonic modes with a nonlinear mode in the middle, as well as two additional nonlinear ancilla. Um, and uh, its coherence is sort of reasonable, it's not state of the art, but it works well. Um, and with this, they're actually able to run an interesting simulation about the um, vibronic structure of a molecule uh, given a certain electronic transition. Right, so this is actually something that contains information about um, you know, the relative potential energy landscape between the vibrational states and the electronic states. Uh, and it's really useful for quantum uh, chemistry processes in general. Um, what's remarkable is that this is actually a really hard process to simulate if we were using uh, the two-level based approach, because this is a bosonic system uh, and we have to coerce all the two-level uh, devices to behave as bosons um, in order to actually emulate this process. But with our cavity, bosonic cavities, we actually have a very natural and efficient way to simulate this process. It's just using two cavities and uh, two to three nonlinear ancilla. And what they observe, the main result is really that, uh, you know, in the small system, we can still fully simulate the structure. Uh, these are the solid black lines. And the uh, calculated one using our bosonic system is actually a very good, uh, very good uh, reproduction of the uh, features that we want to ob observe, the signatures of the vibrionic transitions. So this is a, a very interesting result and actually uh, another, another really highlights another uh, benefit of using structures like this is that it's, it's very versatile. So you can change the design parameters slightly and use it for a completely different type of, uh, type of operation. And uh, more uh, details of this paper can be found on the archive or uh, you should be coming out on PRX uh, in like a week or two. Okay, so, so this is another aspect that I'm pretty excited, to, excited about as well. So uh, just to wrap up, I think overall in this talk, I showed two types of programmable interactions uh, between these bosonic modes stored in superconducting cavities. Uh, they are useful for doing, you know, uh, code and agnostic uh, computation using bosonic qubits. Uh, they're also useful for things like just studying interesting interference effects, uh, etc. So there are more details in these two publications. Um, 
and uh, we, we do see that you know, our current mode of operation is useful, but maybe not perfect yet. So there are many potential ways to improve that just using slightly different uh, mixing elements. So the single Josephson junction case is the easiest way to do this, but with a bit of engineering, we can actually have uh, more adapted mixing elements. Uh, and this is being explored uh, in a few different groups uh, at the moment. Uh, and finally, I think our architecture is, is pretty promising in a sense that it can be extended to higher modes. It can be used for other computational, you know, implementation of computational tests or higher order encodings, for example, uh, sort of a repetition code of some sort with uh, each, of the, each of the subsystems already a protected bosonic qubit or a, a maybe with more modes, we can also have some sort of uh, primitive surface code when e where each of the individual element is actually a bosonic qubit rather than just a simple two-level system. So this potentially would have uh, the effect of reducing the overhead we need for uh, surface code. And finally, I've also shown this little snapshot of a simulation experiment using a very similar, using basically the same architecture and the same device. Um, and that also opens up uh, a whole host of other possibilities for adapting this to study interesting effects in chemistry and condensed matter physics. Um, so with that, I would like to thank you for uh, joining us on this talk. Uh, it's been, you know, a, a great experience so far setting up my group. Uh, we're still very young, so we have lots of uh, postdoc and PhD positions available. Uh, and if you're interested, so you can check out our website or uh, just reach out to me. I'll be happy to have a chat or uh, share with you more about our work, our future work and the team. Uh, thank you. All right, uh, fantastic. Thanks very much, Yvonne. Uh, I'm going to uh, simulate the applause that's coming from all over the uh, different place, I'm sure. Um, now I would like to open up to questions uh, from the audience. If anyone has them, just uh, unmute yourself and say uh, uh, hello and uh, we'll get going. Hey. Uh, I, have a, I have a question um, about the tomography. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, the difference between the Wigner tomography and then kind of like the subspace tomography, do you, do you find that it, when you're doing the Wigner tomography, do, yeah. I mean, it's a bit overcomplete, right? Um, yeah. Or perhaps very overcomplete. Do you find that that, that gives you like additional insights and information to see these pictures? Um, that's a really good question. I think uh, the, the uh, honest answer is that these pictures are not really necessary, but they're very pretty. So, um, so we just take them as a sort of a presentation tool because they offer a bit of intuition in, with, with the features. What we actually do to, uh, or what we use to actually gener uh, do the full tomography is that we uh, sample the, the face space in a, um, using random displacements. So we actually sample a minimal uh, requirements of points that will give us a complete, uh, complete uh, state tomography. Um, and we just do that randomly across different points in face space to, uh, to make it as non-biased as possible. So uh, does the, the randomness come yeah. from like, like a compressed sensing kind of 
it's it's a uh, it's a it's a condensed version version. It's a simplified version of condensed sensing. So so we run it numerically first to see if we you know. Uh, we optimize the displacements a little bit to say which set of random displacements will give us the best uh, condition number or, uh, you know, with the inversion and all that. Um, and, uh, and then we implement that in the actual tomography process. So just following up on that, does that mean mm -hmm. that the, the Vigna tomographies are not directly measured uh, tomographies, but reconstructed from these um, full density matrices that you get out of this compressed sensing uh, tomography? So the, these Wigner uh, snapshots, they are directly measured. So these are yeah. actually just raw data, uh, but we can't afford to do the sort of uh, dense sampling for every plane in the uh, 4D space. So what yeah. we do to construct the full density matrix is to do the compressed sensing approach. But we do have a few directly measured uh, uh, snapshots like this, for example, where we can actually look at it and have a bit of intuition and see that you know, we're doing the right thing and we have all the right features. Uh, ben, did you have a question? Yeah, I was just gonna ask generally about, um, so like, you know, over the past, whatever, 10 years or so, there's been loads and loads of experimental progress on control of single mm -hmm. cavities. Yep. And, you know, just like whatever last year, we have GKP states and binomial yes. codes and lots of cool stuff going on. Yep. Um, and what you've talked about is, is you know, coupling of two, con you know, controlled cavities. Yes. And is there a whole lot of other work going on, like other groups? I mean, this is the next step, right? If you're going mm -hmm. to, to use this for, for um, quantum computation, let's say, you do a really good job in a single system, but now we're going to yep. have to start putting them together. Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of ask more about, like, the general like overview of what's going on in in two modes or more yeah um great yeah the, uh, i totally agree that this is really the natural next step and i think uh you know right now the the works that i'm aware of uh is that you know there's uh, i think yale is might be currently uh, leading this effort on doing multi-mode stuff um with these protected qubits um and I think they are, so for example, Dave Schuster's group in Chicago, they're making these multi-mode cavities. Uh, so this, this quantum flute structure, for example, uh, where they can implement similar things in a maybe slightly different design. So there are uh, quite a lot of um, efforts just starting to tackle this question of how do we put more of these together and do interesting operations among them. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, more and more of the bits and pieces are becoming available uh, for us to use. So I, I do think that we'll see more publications and, and results in this area in the next year or two. Are, are you planning to continue in this direction? Yes. So for me, I think for my new group, uh, one thing we'll focus on is to look into, you know, going beyond just two modes. We may need a bit of architecture change. So uh, we have some designs in mind where that will allow us to have more uh, sort of an easier time to have more boson modes and nonlinear modes interacting with each other. Um, so that's one thing that we'll definitely pursue. And maybe not so much on, you know, uh, maybe not so much on doing algorithms on these bosonic qubits, but more on 
building the tools that will enable that. So for example, for now, we have uh, ways to connect two bosonic qubits um, that are in separate modules. Right, so there's a recent, uh, not quite recent anymore, uh, I think 2019, it came out in Nature Physics. This is uh, uh, the cat, pitch and catch experiment where they can send the bosonic qubit from one side of the, one module to another. Um, but a lot of these uh, efforts, so this can be a single photon state or a error correctable state uh, in different ways. Uh, but all of these experiments so far are sort of one-to-one. So another thing we're thinking about is can we have some sort of equivalent of a, a router so that you could, you know, really pitch your, your bosonic uh, qubit from one mode to another uh, on the fly or one mode to many other modes on the fly. So, so these are some of the directions we're looking into that will, I guess, you know, provide the building blocks for doing, doing full algorithms on these qubits. Right, cool. Josh, I saw you unmuted yourself momentarily. Do you have a question? Um, <laughs> hi, Yvonne, how are you? <laughs> Good. I, I was more or less going to ask Ben's question with a slightly different spin, um, perhaps, which was, um, you know, it seems at least that going from a single system and coupling two systems is, is a big experimental challenge. Mm. But what's like the next hurdle? And I think you've kind of given a partial answer to that. Um, so, yeah, that yeah. was great. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I think one, um, you know, just to follow up maybe more of, as a comment to that is that, you know, the personally, I think uh, as a small, as a new group, uh, we have some ideas for the moment, but what I really wish to see, uh, and I think, you know, some of the Yale, Yale people or the more established groups are already working on is really looking into the next step of higher level encodings. So mm -hmm. Maziar had a paper out in PRX, uh, I think late last year, about uh, maybe repetition code with cat qubits, or you know, people are really thinking about small surface code with GKPs and, and things like that, which I would really, I would be very much excited to see uh, taking place experimentally soon. Okay, yeah, I mean, okay, so that is a good answer. I think that you know, concatenation with another code would be a big step forward as well. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, cool, thank you. Well, uh, I actually have a question. Uh, I have lots of questions actually, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, one in particular again about the tomography. Yep. Um, when you were doing these uh, sort of, these polybasis tomographies, for example, mm -hmm. in the bosonic mode space. Yep. Um, Obviously, there's an issue with these uh, continuous variable encodings that um, the qubit space is only a subspace of the overall Hilbert space. Mm -hmm. um, these tomographies here, are they kind of renormalized to only include the qubit space or how, mu how much of the, how much probability do you lose to being outside this kind of two qubit poly basis? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, actually. Um, so I think, so I guess to start with, we, uh, the data here is not normalized. So I think what we see losing is actually, um, part of it is, is really from leakage. So for example, Kerr would cause that leakage as well. Um, so I don't have a quantitative analysis of this at this point, but mm -hmm. I think what we, so I remember us trying to figure this out uh, just intuitively a little bit. 
what we try to do is to actually um, trying to do this in different ways to see, to compare whether the, uh, the way we're doing it is biased, you know, against leakage or favoring, you know, counting leakage as uh, non-errors or not. Uh, so we did, so for this particular set of data, we actually did it by directly measuring certain points in phase space. So there's no reconstruction. Um, and then for some others, for other sets of data with a similar goal in mind, we did full density metrics and then we extract the, um, the two qubit operators and then we, we check them against our direct measurements. And we actually see that they are fairly consistent. Um, mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that we're accounting for leakage correctly. That, pro that most likely means that we're dominated by spam at this point so mm -hmm. that the deviation due to leakage is something that's a little bit masked at this, uh, in, in these data sets. So we don't have a good knob on quantitatively uh, putting a number on it. Yep, okay. Um, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, and, and my second question, which is a little bit uh, related to that, I guess, well, maybe the way you were talking about spam errors. Um, one of your early plots uh, where you were testing the um, swap capabilities yeah. of, uh, yeah, this one. Yep. So you have um, an initial uh, probability here of um, 0.8. So yes. you, what, but uh, actually with the coherence times in those cavities often like um, previous uh, uh, experiments that have been optimized for this have obviously been able to create very, very high probabilities of yes. single photon states. So what's, what's the limitation here? That, that's that's a really good question. We uh, I, I think we, we get asked this every time, but we still show this data just to show that we're our honesty about it. Um, so so this is really purely due to um, due to the detection problem. So how and and it's really a result of how we measured it, not not an inherent problem. So the All way right. we measure this is because uh, is to measure joint probability, not single probabilities. So what we did is actually we do. Uh, you know, two readouts and we do co uh, correlations to figure out joint probabilities. So we suffer from both of the readouts. Um, another thing is that because this is a single photon state, we're measuring not the parity, which is much higher quality. We're actually using a very selective pulse to measure the photon number, uh, the fo uh, number splitting peaks. Uh, to ensure that we're really in zero one, but not, you know, a bit of two and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's a very long and selective pulse. And that's actually lowering the quality of the detection quite a bit. Right. So okay. as, as a result of that, we see that the overall uh, scale is reduced. But the fact that, you know, it's, it's uh, consistent across the two measurements and the, over, and the decaying envelope is slow tells us that this is really a detection problem, not a coherence of the operation problem. Right, right, okay. But this is a um, problem, yeah. Yeah, go on, sorry. Uh, I, I was just going to uh, say that, you know, this is something that we can completely uh, um, get around by doing a different method of detection for this joint probability. Right, and did you say that this swap operation then works completely well like it works as well for an arbitrary state uh, I didn't quite uh, so catch that. Um, 
what we try, we tried a variety of different input states. We see that, so for example, for this, we're only doing single mode uh, parity measurements at the end, and uh, we're only initial, initial, initializing a single cavity state, a smallish cavity state. So the spam is not as high, and you can see the contrast is very good. Um, we tried the same with uh, different states, and we see what we observe is that as the states gets more complex, we, we see an overall reduction in the contrast, but that's mostly due to the difficulty in preparing a very large uh, cat, cat state or a very large binomial state. Um, the contrast, the diminished contrast after the operation between the various inputs are basically the same. So it's about 2% loss due to the actual swap. Because I guess somehow I would think that um, if you have, if you just put a two photon state onto a beam splitter, my intuition, uh, and I've, I've not done the full calculation, I guess, uh, for this situation, but my intuition is that you would actually um, get some complicated, <clears throat> sorry, some complicated superposition of different photon number states, and you wouldn't okay. necessarily get, get a complete uh, swap over to the other, the other mode for, for arbitrary photon number. Um, oh. But I don't know whether that's, uh, but, but I don't know whether this, I mean, this is a, a bit different from, uh, from maybe this, the situation that I'm familiar with. So I'm not sure whether my intuition is, is holding correctly. So I, I think I see what you mean. Um, the, the reason why this swap operation sh doesn't care, shouldn't, and doesn't seem to care about the input state is that, you know, it, the strength, the, the rate of the swap scales with the photon number as well. So, uh, so overall, we'll have, we can achieve a full swap no matter what the input state is. So with one photon, you will go at a particular rate, right? But now if you have two photons, you have uh, the higher photons uh, present, they, they will go like one by one, but at a faster rate. Right, okay. So overall, we actually achieve a swap, uh, you know, with all the different photon distributions. With larger photon numbers, there is a concern, a little bit of a concern about dephasing because now there are more and more peaks that needs to refocus back exactly right. So the higher order curve effects and dephasing could come into play, but where we never explored, you know, like more than say a cutoff of 15 photons or something. So generally there are still relatively small states. Okay. So, um, we well, maybe, I, maybe, maybe that's something that um, we can, discuss a bit further uh, mm -hmm. offline. Are there any other are there any other questions from the audience before we wrap up? Yeah, I put a question in the chat while you were oh. talking. This uh, is Ben again. Yeah, hi. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um you know, I was just wondering about the like the fault tolerance or error propagation properties of the um, exponential swap gate mm -hmm. and whether they've been studied or not. Yes, this is actually, uh, I, I didn't, do I have a backup? I, I didn't include that slide here. So the, uh, actually the errors happening during the beam splitter is, is very easily accounted because it preserves all sorts of parity and excitation numbers. So we can use the standard tracking um, protocols. And the, the thing, the, the trouble is when uh, things happen in between the two beam splitter operations especially during the control phase, phase shifts. 
because this is where the transmog gets entangled with one of the modes, and if a defacing occur, a defacing event occurs on the transmog, uh, then that could actually scramble the state of the the cavity that is entangled to. Uh, so Liang and Steve actually has a scheme. It's a little bit complicated. I don't know uh, if we can implement it easily, but it is to use the higher uh, levels of the transmog. So I think the uh, there is a science paper from um, Phil and Serge, Phil Reinald and uh, Serge Rosenblum at Yale uh, in 2019 that uses a similar technique. Basically, they, they do control phase shifts not with the GE uh, uh, eigenstates of the transform, but they use the GF. So if the F had a jump, then uh, you can detect it. And, and, maybe and F, is, F is just some higher. Yeah, it's the third level. Okay. And we can actually also address the fourth level. So if you use the third level, you can account for a jump in the transmon. If you use the fourth level, there's actually some interesting tricks that Liang and Steve has to make it also detectable when it's a phase, uh, phase event. So, so it is possible, uh, but at this point, I don't think anybody is actively pursuing that aspect yet. Got it, cool. All right, I think that's probably, unless someone's uh, got an urgent question, they're gonna talk over the top of me. Uh, great. So look, uh, thanks again uh, very much, Yvonne. That was a wonderful talk. Um, uh, fantastic to have you uh, join us uh, and give your presentation. Um, uh, and I'm, I think uh, anyone who feels like uh, uh, unmuting again, we might uh, um, uh, give you a proper clap. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.